So when we consider what we've considered about Jacob, it's not fun. It's not. And it's a, it's a, for a, a mostly an ugly story. But what we're going to see for the next two nights, tomorrow night and Friday night, God willing, is the purposes of God and the patience of God and the long suffering of God. And every time I hear somebody suggest that the God of the Old Testament is a vindictive, impatient God, every time I hear that, and I've, I've even heard that from some pulpits, that it's just different in the Old Testament. I'm thinking, you didn't read the same stuff I read. The patience and long suffering of God everywhere is amazing. And let's not forget, He is immutable. He never changes. He wasn't that way and now He's this way. That's, that's how we are. That's not how God is. So anyway, we'll get back to that tomorrow night. And, um, and I, create, uh, I worked up that series as a five-part series and I just thought, with the um, anniversary of the church coming and being Wednesday night that rather than starting on our series on Monday night, I wanted to get started on Sunday night. And um, so stop here in the middle and we're going to go to the book of Ephesians and chapter number three. And we're going we're gonna to consider a passage that ends like this. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So we're going to be considering uh, a very powerful, in my estimation, very powerful period, uh, portion of Scripture in the book of Ephesians in chapter 3. So we'll get back to Jacob uh, tomorrow night. And, uh, and so re read ahead. There's some of the things in there that you, you'll just need to see a connection but we're not going to spend uh, time on tomorrow night so or Friday. All right, so we're in the book of Ephesians chapter number 3. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. And unless you need to remain seated, how about we stand to honor the Word of God. And we're going to read several verses here. Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> For this cause... I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Parentheses. As I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. End of parentheses. Now, you know what a parenthesis is for. It's sort of like it interrupts a thought, but, it, uh, but I want to get it in there. And that's what Paul does here with that parenthesis, but it kind of interrupts the thought. It's, it's uh, relevant, and it's not like it's not important, but it interrupts the flow of thought. So let's go back to verse number three, and this time we're going to read past the uh, parenthesis and just drop on down to verse number five and start reading. Ready? Verse three how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now real, revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel." Whereof I was made a minister, Paul said, 
according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace, or this enabling, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. And well, let's just go ahead and read the rest of it. I think that would be appropriate. Verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, <laughs> that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And everybody ought to say, Amen. Amen. What a passage. Please, God, adds your blessings now to our time together in the Word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit might be at work and help me and give me the liberty to speak and to think and to uh, communicate, oh God, what we have before us here tonight, at least a part of what is before us. And I pray that you would make it a profitable and helpful time, sure, to every believer, but also to this church collectively, to this assembly, this, your congregation, your flock. I pray that it would be of benefit and encouragement and help to your church. And so I thank you for this time to be a part of the meeting this week. It is a privilege and a blessing. And I thank you for men and women and a congregation that has an appetite for your word and desires to hear from you, God. So I pray that we would experience just that tonight, that we would know that you, we have been in your presence, that you have been in our midst, and that you are at work. We love you and thank you for your great love to us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. you may be seated. I'd like to begin uh, tonight by asking you to use your imagination and think back about nearly 2,000 years ago, 1900 and now plus years ago. And uh, the apostle is writing to the church at Ephesus. And so I just want you to kind of get in your mind that no matter what kind of a facility they had, or how it was they met, 
they did what you can do, if in, what you must do, if in fact you're going to have a church. They assembled. As a matter of fact, I can argue that the first business of the church is to assemble. And that's what the word means and what it has to do with. And so imagine that on a Monday or Tuesday that uh, Timothy, who may well have been the pastor of the church at this particular time, received a letter from the Apostle Paul. And so that would have been a big deal to Timothy, considering Timothy was like his son in the ministry, and to the church at Ephesus, who was familiar with the Apostle Paul. And so imagine he got this letter. And so Timothy sends out a special church-wide uh, text on Tuesday afternoon or Wednesday afternoon and says to everybody, I received a letter from the Apostle Paul. You got to be here Wednesday night. And so he just gives them a heads up and they all come. So the church comes and assembles. Now, here's where your imagination has got to kick in. We got to think back to how things were and what the Apostle Paul is dealing with, because in that assembly, were believers, sure, that are Gentiles, and he addresses the majority of the church as being, having been Gentiles that came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. There was also in the church those that were Jewish that were believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm probably oversimplifying this a little bit, but I, I'm just trying to get, us, to get the picture. There was a schism in that church like there was throughout, I'm sure, Asia Minor and everywhere where there were Jewish believers and there were Gentile believers. And uh, there were those Gentile believers that resented the attitude that they had known forever from the Jews, believers or non-believers, uh, toward Gentiles. And so the Gentile believers were really puzzled by the fact that there were in their midst and in the same assembly Jewish believers and Jewish believers carried an attitude about those that were Gentile believers. Because even though many of the people, the Jews are over here, the Gentiles are over here. Okay, so that's the way it's going to work tonight. I don't mean to cause division in the church, but I am tonight. And so you got the Jewish believers over here. You have the Gentile believers over here. And if you really want to know how they feel about you, they are not quite certain that you could be heirs of the same thing that they are heirs of. They weren't raised that way. They weren't taught that way. They weren't taught by the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders and the Sadducees. They were not taught that Gentiles had a place in the purposes and work of God that isn't what they believed at all. They believed that, that their time was going to come, that Israel would be restored as the prominent nation in the world. And all of you, well, to them, you rank right up there with dogs and pigs and everything that's unclean. And here you are sitting over here singing the songs of salvation like you have the same thing they have. You see... Can you see where the problem was? And so over here, they're having this attitude about the Gentiles. And obviously the Gentiles do not say, it's okay, we love you anyway. No, the Gentiles have an attitude about the Jewish believers. And so there would have been a schism in the churches. 
Now, the Apostle Paul, keep that in mind, and the Apostle Paul begins, and he is going to address and is addressing this very issue, the fact that there is a wall, that there is a division, that there is tension and there is strife in the church. And it should not be, and so the Apostle Paul is going to address this. Now, what he does as he begins is, he, he explains by what authority he is addressing this issue. Because uh, it's not necessarily so that just because it's the Apostle Paul writing, who we all respect and reverence in so many ways, because he was filled with the Holy Ghost, he was that apostle born out of due season, because of the 13 books of the New Testament that we have that came from the Apostle Paul, all of the reasons that we love him and care for him, you, you have to understand that the Jewish believers didn't all feel exactly that way about him because he was the apostle to whom? The Gentiles. I said he was specifically called as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles had an attitude about the Jews. The Jews had an, entire about, uh, an attitude about the Gentiles. And so you have this schism and division and Paul is going to address it. And there are going to be people that want to know, now wait just a minute, maybe they weren't there when Paul ministered and stayed for 18 months in the city of Ephesus. No, three years, I'm sorry, in the city of Ephesus. Maybe they weren't there. And so they've heard of him, but they don't know him like some of them do. And so they're going to wonder, okay, if this guy's going to write us a letter, then we want to know by what authority he writes. Imagine this week if I went back to Oklahoma, and then a couple of weeks, I, Brother Ingram gets a letter from me, and I will say to him, uh, Brother Ingram, I noticed while I was there, and I write down a list of things I notice, and I want you to take care of these things and deal with them. These things need to be taken care of because it's going to be a problem or is a problem in the church, and I want you to take care of it. Now, what do you think he's going to do? Say, thank you. No, he's going to say, who? Do you think you are? Why don't you just from now on stay in Oklahoma? That would be just fine. Why? Because I have no authority to do that. I have no authority to do that whatsoever. I, don't, I have no authority in this church. I couldn't vote if you was voting for whatever. I'd have, I, I don't have any authority here at all. So he wouldn't appreciate that. Well, if you can imagine, they get this letter from to some a very, very dear man to others, a man they don't know. And so the Apostle Paul, come on, he's thinking ahead and the Holy Ghost is involved in this, of course, by the inspiration. And so he's thinking ahead and he knows they, they need to understand by what authority I am dealing with this issue. And so he starts like that. If you look in chapter three and verse number one, let's just kind of work our way through this first part. Then we'll really get to the good stuff here in a minute. But he says in verse number one, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, that's not necessarily going to set well with all the Jews, but he is um, Jewish believers, but I am uh, uh, the apostle for you Gentiles. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. Now, let me pause right there and, and kind of expound upon this for just a moment. When he uses the word dispensation, what is he talking about? Well, we know how we often use the word dispensation. We often think of it as a dispensation is a segment of time 
in God's economy of things. That in the overall program of God, there are these various dispensations that can be discerned in the Word of God and can be taught and talked about. The word here is not referring to some segments of time in God's calendar or God's program. Here, it is the same word that is elsewhere translated, stewardship. So if you study this word, it has to do with a responsibility or a work of management or stewardship that has come to the Apostle Paul. It's come his way. He didn't ask for it. He wasn't looking for it. But it's the dispensation. Now watch this. Look at it. Verse 2. Of the grace of God. This came to him of the grace of God. Now pause right here for just a minute. We just got through hearing that beautiful song. Great message and song on grace for grace. Now when we think of the grace of God, what is the first and foremost thing that comes to our mind? Well, the first and foremost thing is the thing that the pastor mentioned a moment ago uh, about what we don't deserve, what the song talked about, that we, we could be or should be in hell or a heartbeat from hell, but for the grace of God. That is what we receive from God that we do not deserve. And so we understand the Apostle Paul also wrote to Titus and he said, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. So the grace of God often refers to salvation. But I have to tell you, if you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, he used it more in another way. What we have is the word grace. And it has to do with the enabling of God. And so Paul is in the minute, I am what I am by the grace of God or by the enabling of God. And that's what he, how he's using the word right here. So look at it again in verse 2. He said, if you have heard of the area of responsibility or stewardship or dispensation that is given to me, to you word, now how'd you get that? He said, by the enabling of God. Does everybody listen to this? It's not something I was innately born with. It's not something that just came along with me being saved as Saul of Tarsus. It's not that. It's that in the providence and will of God, he gave me this responsibility and this stewardship uh, by his enabling to deal with the church at Ephesus, which would affect all the churches. Excuse me. Did you know that what happened in Ephesus affected all the churches of Asia Minor and the area? And so what was being taken of here, care of here would also spill over and have effect upon other churches. And so the Apostle Paul said, this dispensation or responsibility is given to me by the enabling of God. He's not claiming to be anything special or to know anything special except what God has given him to do. I think it's very important to understand that. All right, now look down at verse number three. How that by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery. Uh Uh-huh. Paul is going to make known a mystery. And then he refers to it as a mystery again in the later verses. So here's what he is saying. I'm going to deal with something that must be known that hasn't been known. He mentions, as you noticed in our reading, that this was not known by the others and prophets before them. This was not known. It was a mystery. Now, mystery in the Word of God, that's interesting too. At least I think it is. 
Because a mystery, you might think a mystery is something that we cannot know. Well, uh, if you want to look at it that way, okay. As a matter of fact, uh, the Word of God, the same apostle wrote, and he said, uh, for the thing, let's see, how did he word it there in Corinthians? I should have looked that up. Uh, but he said in Corinthians, he said, uh, for, the, for the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, for they are mystery to him. And so if you just take this Bible and put it in the hand of an unbeliever who does not have the Holy Spirit of God in him and who does not have a relationship with God, hey, the whole thing's a mystery. And, and he cannot know the spiritual things. He cannot. Why? Because the Spirit of God's not in him. That's what it says very clearly. And so it's all a mystery. And the Apostle Paul's writing to his church, uh, to these believers at Ephesus, and he is saying, I, I am, it is my responsibility by the enabling of God to make known to you what has been a mystery. So a mystery, ladies and gentlemen, is not something that can't be known, but can only be known as God makes it known. See, and God, as the pastor said, God doesn't want to be a mystery to us. He wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to have communion or us to have communion with him and fellowship with him. And, and so, hold on, John. And so what he's saying is, uh, this has not been understood and not been known. So that's why there's still a schism. We'll use this middle aisle to show it. That's why there's still a schism. When church begins, all of those people over here, they come in that door. These people come in that door. When they go, they're not going to reach over and shake hands. They go out that door and they go out that door. And, and that's an issue in the church because the church is what? It's the body of Christ. Well, Brother Sam, I think you're kind of, <laughs> kind of not, I think you may be a little bit lost there because actually the body of Christ is a universal invisible church. Well, that's a great concept if it was only biblical, but it's not. And in order to have what the definition of church is, you have to have an assembly. And the idea of, a, of an invisible assembly, I don't care who you heard on the radio or who you heard on TV, or what kind of book you've read from somebody, I'm just saying right now, it is a contradiction of the very definition of the term. Something universal, invisible, being called an assembly, a calling out, or an assembly, see? And so in order to have a called out assembly, or in order to have the body together, you have to have congregants. That's what you are here tonight. Those of you that are members of this church, you make up the body. It's the body of Christ. People say, if a church is the body of Christ, how many bodies are there? Well, now hold on, friends. People talk about in the body of Christ, and they think they're talking about all believers everywhere. The claim Christianity in the world is the body of Christ. Oh, I about get sick when I hear that kind of stuff. That's, that's what the body of Christ is. There's a problem in the body of Christ. If you think all believers everywhere on this earth are the body of Christ, you do have a huge problem. I said a huge problem. So we're getting quiet in here. Is this still on? Turn this up just a little bit. Well, you know, I'm just kidding. Don't turn it up. Yeah, and, and that's what it takes. So the, let's say Canaan Baptist Church. Would you read 1 Corinthians 11, for example? Uh, 1 Corinthians 12. And 13 and 14, would you read that and think maybe that Paul was referring to the 
body or the assembly or the congregation of Corinth? He was. Is he writing to the congregation of Ephesus? He is. Oh, what is that? Well, the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls it a body. And the Spirit adds to the body of God as he sees fit. So the church is a body. Whose is it? Everyone saw you hear an advertisement and say, let's say, just, just for an example, hey, we want to invite you to come to Atlanta's First Baptist Church or you come to Oklahoma City's Southwest Baptist Church. Stop. Southwest Baptist Church doesn't belong to Oklahoma City. Just happens to belong, uh, to be there. They belong to Oklahoma City. Uh, you the pastor of Southwest Baptist Church? I was for 20 years. What'd you do at your church? I never had a church. I thought you was the pastor of that church, but it wasn't mine. <laughs> it's not my church. Mine in the sense of belonging, but not mine in the sense of lordship or ownership. Uh-uh. Well, then whose body is it? Somebody answer me, please. It's Christ's body. See. All right. So it, it, what is he thinking about a schism that's in the body? What does he say about that? Well, it's not to be there. How is the body supposed to function? How many of you, you're thinking about your own physical body, and I'm not the one that made this analogy that a church is a body that's in the Word of God. I didn't make this stuff up. And I, I, I'll just speak for myself. As far as I'm concerned, I just soon every part of my body that's on me and in me worked. Amen. Was doing what it was put there to do. I just soon that be the case. Because I had situations where that's not doing what you're supposed to do, and it causes a problem for the whole body. Is everybody with me here? Okay, so that's how we have to look at a New Testament church. And it's this body. And so the body at Ephesus, there's a schism there. And Paul said, I am coming, not because I think I'm somebody or no more than anybody else, but because God has made known to me what has been a mystery that now he wants to be known. It wasn't known by other apostles. It wasn't known before. And it wasn't known by prophets before. As a matter of fact, I think you can see in the word of God that even the angels looked into the situation and desired to understand this matter of the concept of the body or a New Testament church. And so what he's doing is he's writing that he might heal the schism that is there. Or if you back up into chapter number two, yeah, look in chapter number two where he is saying, let me see here, in verse number 13, but now in Christ Jesus, ye were, who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And he just has referred to the Gentiles in the previous verses. And he said, you were sometimes, afar, you were way out of the picture, <laughs> but because of the blood, uh, the blood of Jesus Christ, you've been made nigh. For he is our peace who hath made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So you know what he, look at me just say, you know what he's saying? He say, like it or not, you and you are one. The Jews might rise up and say, that's an insult. Oh, the Jews are over here. The Jews would rise up and say, that's an insult. Pigs and dogs over there. No. You don't understand what God is revealing. 
But Paul is going to make sure you do understand what God is revealing, that we've got to get this middle wall of partition that they've been living by. This middle wall of partition has to be removed because you as a believer in Jesus Christ and you as a believer in Jesus Christ, there's not a, well, let's just talk Southern, shall we? There's not a lick of difference between you and you. We have a Jewish background. You were a sinner going to hell. The law could not save you and the deeds of your flesh could not save you. Only the grace of God could save you by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And you, you got saved the same way that they have to be saved. And as far as God's economy is concerned, and it needs to be understood, there is no difference between you and you. And you can boil over here if you want to. Go ahead. You can squirm. You can get up and walk out the door. I'm a Jew and my parents would turn over in their grave if they heard this being said. <laughs> yeah, well, take it however you want to. This is what God is making known. Well, all I meant to say was Paul is showing the authority for why he's dealing with this thing. Now, he is making known again what hasn't been known. In other words, he is unveiling the, the mystery. Now, look down at verse number six. Here's what the mystery was what I just got through stating. Look in verse six. Here it is. Okay. Uh, let me see. Look back up in verse five. Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that, here it is, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. There goes your schism. There went your wall or petition between you right then and there. And he is making it known. Watch this. <laughs> this is amazing. Look at verse 17. Where, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. There he is again saying, I, hey, I don't claim to be anything. God gave me this. This is what he has for me. God given unto me by the effectual working of his power, Watch this. Uh, unto me. Look at me a second. It's like Paul is saying, of all people to be doing this. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a, I was a top-notch Pharisee. Nobody hated Gentiles more than the apostle, more than Saul of Tarsus. I mean, come on. He was the ultimate Pharisee. He was the ultimate Hebrew. And somebody said, isn't it amazing that God chose him? Well, he thinks it is. That's why he is saying, unto me, who am the least, watch this, unto me, who am the least, who am less than the least of all saints, of all the people that God could have used, he used me. He's astounded by it. He can't get over it. He, he just can't. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ Amen. to make it all men see. What is it? the fellowship? The fellowship of the mystery. Excuse me. Look at me just a second. See this? When we go out the door tonight, you're going to talk to these people and call them brother and sister. Amen. Don't look at me like you're not going to. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> just kidding. And, and you know what you're going to do? You're going to start loving them. 
You say, oh, how could we love them? They've looked down their proverbial nose at us all this time and they've called us pigs and dogs and everything under the sun. I know, but now they understand who they are in Jesus Christ and who you are in Jesus Christ. And you have to have the same understanding of who you are in Jesus Christ and who they are in Jesus Christ, that there is no middle wall of partition. And as far as the salvation of the soul is concerned, there is not a bit of difference between the Jew and the Greek. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. There is no difference whatsoever. And the apostle Paul is saying, God has enabled me, called me. He has given me this stewardship to responsibility to make this known. Why now? Why now? Or let's put it another way. What is God's intent in making this known? Why is he doing this? Well, look down at verse number 10. Oh, isn't that something? You ask the question, what was his intent? Isn't that something? Look at this. Just walked right into this one. To the intent. It sounds like we're going to understand the why for, huh? Okay. To the intent that now under the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known the manifold wisdom of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, verse 10 is so vitally important that God is making this mystery known through his servant, as we know, Paul the apostle, to the intent, watch this, that he might make known to principalities and powers in heavenly places. Now, who is that? Principalities and powers? Well, that would be in the spirit world, in the, in the angel realm, in the angel world. God wants to make it known to them. Principalities. Principalities has to do, are you listening? Angels of the highest order. You mean there are ranks of angels? Apparently. If principalities has to do with those of the highest order, there must be a lesser order or something. Yeah. And power, principalities and powers in high places? Yes. God wants to make it known to them that they don't know. That's why Peter wrote and said angels have looked into this. They don't even understand it. They've longed to understand it. But they haven't. And now God is making it known, excuse me just a second, so that he might make known his wisdom and his power. And at the end, that he might throughout all ages, world without end, receive the glory. Now, you and I know that everything that God does is supposed to return to his glory. I said, everything that God does in working here, Jesus coming here, everything that God gives us, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. And God is not trying to spoil his children or make his children fat and sassy. He fully intends that everything we receive from him returns to his glory. His glory is the ultimate end to everything. And so he is making this known, what hasn't been known, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Watch this. So he might show them, principalities and powers, his wisdom, his power, 
and get the glory from them. Now, that's what the verse says. That's why he's doing this. Making this known. Okay, now, if God, this is so simple, it's right there in the text, and most of you figured this out anyway, but I'm going to go ahead with it like you don't, haven't got it figured out yet. Okay, so if God is going to show his wisdom and power to principalities and powers in high places, number one, uh, by what agency will he do that? What's he going to use? To the intent that now, verse number 10, to the intent that now principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, the agency that he has chosen to show his manifold wisdom and power and get glory from beings greater than ourselves. We are made a little lower than the angels. These are principalities and powers that are more intelligent than we, that are more powerful than we. We are made lower than the angels. That's what it says. And so God wants to take these principalities and powers, these angels of the highest order, and he wants to by his church, show his wisdom and his power and get the glory from it. Wow. Well, you can only conclude that, well, I mean, you can only conclude that when an authentic church I'm talking about a biblical, I'm not talking about everything that has church on the door or on the sign. That's not what I'm talking about. An authentic church meets the qualifications of the New Testament to be an authentic church. When an authentic church assembles, we must have an audience that we don't see. called in the Bible principalities and powers in heavenly places. That he means by the church, by the assembly, by the congregants, by the congregation, by the life of this body. See, we have an audience that observe the life of an authentic church to see what? The wisdom of God and the power of God to give glory to God. That's exactly what it says. You know, all of this, uh, this swept across the church, quote unquote, church scene out here, all this swept across, uh, more casual. 
Everything's casual. Everything's loose. Everything. Come as you are. Who cares? It's a bunch of legalist nuts that think it's a right thing to dress up and go to church and such as that. It's, it, it's, it's just, it doesn't matter to God how you look, what you wear, what you do. How you, just come. Come as you are. And at the end of the service and Super Bowl Sunday, we'll show the football game and, and uh, we'll do this. And we'll have less services on Sunday night because, uh, you know, people knew it. People are very, very busy. And there's a lot of stress. And one of the, one, what used to be one of the biggest soul winning churches in the United States of America was located in Dell City, Oklahoma. I'll never forget when that pastor said, we're not going to have churches on uh, Sunday night. We want to give you family time and have time for you to have your neighbors over for a barbecue or something so you can talk to them about the Lord. And so we're not going to have it. Well, you know where that went. All it was a couple of summers of that, then there's no Sunday night service, period. It's gone. But anyway, all this casual attitude. Well, have you read the book by so-and-so? No. I haven't. Have you listened to the podcast, this guy that defends the contemporary movement, the contemporary church? No, I haven't. I have a question. Has he read his Bible? Has he ever really read the Word of God and see about the function of a New Testament church and the high and lofty nature for the purpose of a New Testament church? I'm, I'm just saying to you, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, Timothy, I'm writing you these things so you'll know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Excuse me, we're not just another venue for entertainment in the United States of America to have a place where you can go and get some religious entertainment and watch people rock out. No, sorry, that is not why the New Testament church exists. The New Testament church exists, he said, it is the pillar and ground of the truth. And while everybody's trying to throw doctrine out the window so nobody can get offended about anything, the Word of God still says that we are the pillar and ground of the truth. And there's a, 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 a responsibility of the New Testament church is to lift high the truth, sound doctrine. What is, excuse me, what is said by Jesus and what Jesus said and what he taught us to say and what God has revealed. That's the reason a church exists. It doesn't exist so your kids can have a Christian place to play sports. That's not why a church exists. It exists for the purposes of the glory of God. That's what it exists for. And he said, uh, well, uh, so we assemble. And can you imagine? I, I wonder if it matters with what attitude I come to church. Oh, it doesn't matter. Our church, there's quite a few people in our church. And I just go and <laughs> I, I just kind of blend in with the audience. No, you don't because you're not the audience. They are the audience. I don't see anybody, which doesn't mean they're not there. Principalities and powers in heavenly places observing the life of the church. Well, how many authentic churches are there? Well, less than we need, that's for sure. Yeah, but there's still, I mean, look across America, there's still churches that are holding the truth and standing about the stuff. How, how many angels are there? Plenty. 
That's the least of my worries of how many angels there are. I'm quite sure God's got it all covered, especially when there's going to be 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands of them that are going to be praising His wonderful name. I don't think there's a shortage of angels for every authentic church to have an audience of angels and principalities and powers in heavenly places. Looking on for what? What reason? To see His wisdom. And to see his power. And therefore give him the glory. It's right there. And, and I, I love this passage. And, and it's helped me. But I have to go back to it over and over. Because you know why? I'm no different than anybody else. I just get to where? Okay, well, it's Wednesday. Now we've got two more nights of meeting to go. And then next week we're going to go here and they're going to go there. And we're going to do this. And we did. And I, hold on just a second. I'm as human as anybody else. I can get caught up in that. And I need to read this. I read through my Bible about five times a year. And I need to come back and be reminded here over and over and over again that we are not just doing what we do to do what we do by rote and without emotion, without feeling, without passion, without heart. We're, we are not to be going through a bunch of religious ritual and ceremony. Well, the revival's about over. I went, at least I made every service. I made every service. No, there's so much more that God wants us to understand. That when we assemble, when we assemble, beings that should they appear physically to us would probably put us under the pew. That's what happened to some of God's servants when they appeared. They fell down afraid. And they are observing the life of this church. I wonder if it matters if I stay awake or not. I wonder if it matters if I listen and participate in the service and assent to the truth so that the unlearned and the unbelievers can be convinced of all and judged of all that God is in us of a truth. Do, do I participate? Do I sing? Do, 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 I'll go back to that participation. Do I at least every once in a while when the preacher is working hard and trying to communicate some truth that is dynamic and that is vitally important, do I participate by at least saying? Did you ever meet Todd Bell? Priest up in Maine, North Carolina guy went to Maine. Said, I'll go up to Maine and I'm going to make shouters and hallelujah ameners out of those people from the hills of North Carolina. I'm going to go up there. And he said, and it took me five years, five long years. And finally, one day when I was preaching, I looked back and that one man that was sitting back there about four rows back, which would have been the back row. He said, I look about four rows back and he goes like this. And I said, glory to God, revival's breaking out. Hallelujah. Look what's happening here. But it is a fact that when an unlearned person, an unbeliever comes, he's not just supposed to be convinced by the preacher. That's not what the book says. Read 1 Corinthians 14. That unbeliever and unlearned man is to be convinced of all. And he is to be judged of all. That means that when the Word of God is being preached, there has to be somebody that is saying something like, Amen, that is so. We are in agreement. This is a matter of fact. So that when an unlearned man or unbeliever knows it, he's not sitting back there saying, well, the preacher believes it. I'm not sure anybody else does. Because most of them are sitting there like they're half bored out of their mind. 
But if you come to the house of God and you understand why we are assembling and the business that is being done, not just here, but in relation to those that are greater than ourselves, that are supposed to be seeing the wisdom of God and they're supposed to be seeing the manifestation of the power of God and they're supposed to in turn give God the glory, then maybe it'd pay us to really wake up and participate in the service and pay attention in the service and make sure that the grandkids can learn how to draw somewhere else. They don't have to learn during the preaching time and the Word of God. Teach kids how to sit there and sit still and listen. Well, you can't do that these days. You know why you can't do that these days? Because ain't made anybody. But... Slow down. Nobody's trying. At least not many. At least not many. So I suppose you sat in church like a good little angel. No, I sat in church. But when I wasn't angelic, all of a sudden out of nowhere, my dad would have his arm around my mother and I'm sitting by the mother. And all of a sudden there's this crack you can hear across the auditorium. And I'm seeing stars. My dad had a powerful finger. friend. He'd thump me in the back of the head. Didn't even have to say a word. And I didn't even have to look at him. I knew, whoa. That man's got eyes in his ears, so help me. It looked like he was looking straight ahead. He saw everything I was doing, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but let, let me get back. What, what might principalities and powers in heavenly places observe that would show them the wisdom of God and the power of God so that they give God the glory? What might they observe? Now, so as not to make this long, I'll just ask you to do this. Do your own study of Ephesians. And you'll see in your own reading, you can just read it three or four times and you'll see the picture. You'll see that, look at me just a second. Those who assemble as the people of God in the house of God and are the household of God and are an authentic New Testament church are to be a holy people. They are to be a holy people. That means separated from the world. I can remember the day when you expect a preacher always to somewhere deal with a matter of personal separation. In the Bible, it's called practical sanctification. We're sanctified the day we get saved. We get set apart unto God. Because of who we are in Jesus Christ, we are set apart unto God. That's our positional sanctification. But there is also practical sanctification, which means we are going to live what we are, children of God. And the way the Apostle Paul puts it in the book of Ephesians is, put off that old man, that old man that wanted to follow the appetites of the flesh that are contrary to God. Because the appetites of the flesh that are contrary to God war against our soul is the way the Apostle Peter put it. They, they, they are not good for our spiritual life. They war against the soul. And what he expects of us is a separated people. Now when the, excuse me, the angels of the highest order observe an assembly, what do you think they think if before every person of this congregation walked in the door, they were just like the rest of the people out there. They had the same pleasures, the same appetites, the same ambitions. They operated by the same kind of standards. They lived a Jacob life, pushed their way around, 
push and shove and fight, elbow and fight it out because in this world, you got to know how the game is played, then walk in the door. Oh, how I love Jesus. I shouldn't have done that. You want me to sing more now. And come in the door and just sing. Yes, sir. Amen, brother. And shake hands, stuff like that. No, but don't you know in this wicked world, from the view that the angels of the highest order have of the activities of life on planet Earth, don't you know it's something to behold when there is a people that is totally separate? Not just separated from, but separated unto God. And they don't do what they don't do because of God, not because some other church member might criticize them but because of their own love for and fear of God. And so they separate themselves. So you won't find in their refrigerator what you find in the people out there in the world. And you won't see in their entertainment schedule the kind of entertainment that's going on there. And you won't hear the kind of language in the house of people in the house of God from the house of God like you'd hear in the average house. And you don't see men trying to be womanizers and women seeing how many men they can get the attention of. No, no, it's different because the fashions of the world lend itself to immorality and impurity and lust. And every app I said, the, the fashions and the ways of this world lend themselves to everything that is contrary to purity. You can look at me weird all you want to. That is what the fashion world is about. And lo and behold, if somebody doesn't stand up and preach it once in a while, the children of God follow the same fashions and the same patterns, no matter how much flesh, no matter how vile, no matter how it appeals to the lust of the flesh. It's sick. It is sick. It is sick. It is sick. To think that the day would come, we'd have to say, you're not going to get married in this church unless you dress like this. Well, what? Who do you think you are? Well, look, if you want to go and participate in that kind of stuff and you want to follow the fashions, and if you think that you, the best thing you can do on your wedding day is to see how much you can show to other men that are present, then go do it somewhere else. Because that kind of behavior doesn't belong in the house of God, in the place where God's people meet to worship. It doesn't. And here's the people that understand separation, the things they won't do and the things they do. But it's, it just boils down to this. Paul said, for ye were darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's in chapter 4. Let's run that by again. You were darkness. You were just like all the darkness that's out there before you got saved. But now you're light in the Lord. The only reasonable thing to do is walk what you are. Walk as children of light. And don't you know, when the angels of the highest order see that there is a congregation no matter what size, no matter what geographic location, they look and say, look at that. Only the wisdom of God, only the power of God could produce a holy people in an unholy world like this. 
that are not just holy because the church has a set of rules they have to go by, not because of that, but they are separated from so as to be separated unto a righteous and holy God. He did that. It's his wisdom and his power that did it. Give him the glory. Holiness. Second thing is unity. Read the book of Ephesians. What was the problem in the church? Lack of. That was one of them. The middle wall of partition. Unity. Unity in the church. Um, okay, so we don't have the issue of Jew and Gentile. Um, we do have the issue of race. And I'm, I'm, I'm really not into all the media stuff and how they try to make everything about race, but I'm just saying, as a child of God, I don't have the liberty no matter how I disagree with a foreign government and the people that might come here from that nationality, I, I don't have any liberty to hate them. Amen. I don't have any liberty to not love them. Amen. And especially when they are in the house of God. God I, I love preaching in California. And I preach out there for Brother Alan Fong. And my wife and I would be one of about five people that looked like us in terms of our skin color. And then you got them from all over the world. It's just amazing, wonderful congregation. God willing, I'll be going out towards the end of September with Brother Tim Rasmussen in Canoga Park. And it's the same thing. You got them from India, all over Asia, Africa. They're just there from everywhere. The world went to California. Still going to California. If there's a mission field on planet Earth, it's the state of California. and unity. But often that's not the issue. There are other things that can bring disunity. I didn't get my way. I didn't agree with that decision. I don't think they should have taken my child out of the class and talked to him. Yeah, but your child did this. Yeah, but my child said they didn't do that. And I heard this, my child never lies. Yeah. That's what I did. After I got up off the floor laughing, I said, now we need to talk about this. <laughs> Children never lie. And disunity. Now, I'm going to give you the quote I gave from Brother Clarence Sexton the other night. You just mark this down. Carnal people take problems that really in the whole scheme of things that are about that big and make sure they get this big. They're willing to divide a whole church over it. But God's people that care take a problem this big and make sure it goes away. Because it's not, listen to me, it's not worth dividing a body. I said it's not worth dividing a body. It's not worth tension in the church. It's not like, and I'm just telling you right now, as a preacher, I've, I've had to, like your pastor, the privilege of preaching in how, how many? Over 600 churches through the years. And I can just tell you right now, the churches that are stuck in the mud and going nowhere and doing nothing are wallowing in pettiness and paying attention to issues and divided and fuss and fight over things that don't matter that much. 
don't be a part of it. Don't be a part of it. There are angels of the highest order that look on when an authentic church meets and they're supposed to see the wisdom of God and the power of God. And if you look at the disunity that's in our country everywhere, I said in the corporate world, in the sports world, in the political world, everywhere you find in the home and the family. I'm just talking about it's everywhere. Don't you know, whenever there's a group of people that come together and like the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is so present that they are of one mind and one accord. Don't you know those beings greater than ourselves are saying, uh, come here and look at this. See that church? Ain't nobody preferring themselves above the other. They know what deference means. Look at that. Glory to that church. No, no, no. Only the wisdom of God and the power of God can produce that kind of unity. To God be the glory. And the church exists to let its light shine. You read the whole book of Ephesians. They have a responsibility to the lost and to the unsaved which brings glory to God. Come on, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God in heaven over one sinner that repents. And when the church is where it's supposed to be <laughs> and we're separated unto God from what we ought to be separated from, when our hearts are united because of our devotion to God, not because there aren't people that can't think for themselves, but because they're so devoted to God. And the wealth and, uh, or the health and the welfare of the church is far more important than any little petty desire that I have that I'm disappointed I didn't get. No, the work of his church is far greater than my little petty desires or disappointments. Yeah. Look at the wisdom of God and look at the power of God. Another sinner got saved. Another soul trusted Jesus. Give God the glory. Nobody gets saved by the wisdom of man. Nobody gets saved by the power of man. But when a sinner gets saved, it's the wisdom of God and it's the power of God. That there might be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. Thank you, Father, for your precious word. Thank you for this time together. I pray that every member of Canaan Baptist Church, no matter, no matter where they are, would just repurpose that this church exists not for my and my family's ambitions, the way I think things ought to be. We exist for the glory of God. We exist for the glory of God. So my life outside of this church must be holy. For God is holy. Outside of these walls, it's important how I live, how I think. It's important the kind of person that I am. And help me, oh God, that my life would contribute to the glory of Yes, O oh God, to your glory before the principalities and powers that are greater than ourselves. Forgive me, Lord, for sowing a seed of discord, for passing on a bit of information that it would have been best left 
alone. For trying to get somebody on my side on a particular issue. Oh God, help us. Help us to understand what is at stake. We can see by faith. I've never seen the manifestation of an angel as far as I know. But I have faith in your word that if you mean for the principalities and the powers in heavenly places to see your wisdom and your power and give you the glory, then I know they are there. And I pray that our desire to bring people to salvation would bring glory to your wonderful name. Now bless this invitation. Bless this church going forward. A celebration time, a homecoming, an acknowledgement of another calendar year passing and the church still going. That's, that's a, it's a wonderful occasion. It's an appropriate celebration. And I pray, oh God, that there would just be a desire, a hunger to be the kind of church that does indeed, indeed manifest your wisdom, your power, and cause glory to be given to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we?